This past week, it's just been a crazy week. You ever have one of those? You probably know what I'm talking about. Um, on Thursday, uh, my good friend, Nick Wackerhagen, who also happens to be our family pastor, uh, he discovered that he got COVID. And that's whenever I realized, hey, Doug, you're going to be preaching this Sunday. Uh, so that was uh, a surprise. Um, on Wednesday, we celebrated our youngest son's sixth birthday. Today, we celebrate one of our daughters, uh, her 12th birthday. So it's just been a busy week. Um, but my wife and I, we love getting to celebrate our kids' birthdays. Uh, it's a special moment just to look back and remember these memories that we've had with each of them. And uh, one of the memories that we have with pretty much all of our kids is reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. It's an incredible just series of children books, and every time we read it, it feels like it just gets better. We've probably read it out loud four or five times um, as our kids have grown up. Now, in the most popular of those books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, at the end of the book, and let me just give you a heads up, spoiler alert, okay? At the end of the book, Aslan climbs up on the stone table, and he sacrifices himself uh, to cover Edmund's rebellion and stupidity and sin. And by this time in the story, like Aslan has been built up as this absolute hero, a, a savior, you know, like he's a lion who is brave and courageous. He's good, but not safe is what Mr. Beaver says. And the Pevensey children just adore Aslan. And they're mad at their younger brother for eating that Turkish delight. And they're shocked that Aslan has to do this. And there on the stone table, Aslan dies. And of course, the witch, she rejoices and all of evil claims their victory and shouts their triumph. It will forever be winter but never Christmas in Narnia. And Lucy Pavinci, the youngest of the children, she just cries. Her beloved Aslan is gone. He's died. It wasn't supposed to end this way. This is not what was supposed to happen. She's shocked. But in that moment, when Aslan gave up his life for another, we see the true heart of Aslan. Like his real character comes through. And the title of the very next chapter is Deep Magic from the Dawn of Time. Aslan gave himself willingly and he died on that stone table because he knew there was a deeper magic from before the dawn of time. He knew that if he died, he'd rise. If he died in the place of Edmund, the Pavinces would be spared and all of Narnia would be revived and he'd get to lead them to victory. Aslan himself says it this way in the book. When a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And whenever Whitney or I are like reading this part out loud, this is when our kids, they're just uh, uh, fist pumping in the air. Yeah, go Aslan, destroy the witch off with her head, you know, or go Aslan, I just love them so much, kind of depending on their unique personalities. But it was a shocking and a surprising defeat that was actually a declaration of victory. Aslan's true character shone forth and victory was claimed. It was all planned. It was all purposeful and it was victorious. 
Whenever you think about movies, most great movies have a similar storyline when something that looks like defeat is actually victory. Whenever the moment that the main character's heart shines through and we find him truly trustworthy and the tables are turned, the script is flipped, and we get to see things as they really are. Most movies go that route. Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Les Miserables, 1917, To End All Wars, Big Hero 6, Ocean's 11 and 12, and probably 13, if that one exists. I'm not really for sure if it does or not. They tell the story of purposeful suffering that looks like defeat, but it's actually victory. And so it is in the Gospel of Mark. We've been studying through Mark all summer long, and now we come to chapter 15, the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, throughout Mark, we've seen Jesus win a lot. He heals people. He delivers them from demons. He controls the universe. He can stop the flow of water with just his word. He literally creates matter when he speaks and multiplies the bread and the fish to feed thousands. We've seen him call together this ragtag band of followers and deputize them, give them authority to go preach the gospel, cast out demons, heal the sick. And they actually do it. We've seen Jesus himself teach with authority and outwit the religious leaders. He escapes capture. And then he comes into Jerusalem the last week of his life to just these cheers. Yes, go Jesus. Shouts of praise and triumph. But all of that seems to change so fast, doesn't it? Like we saw last week, his disciples flee him. They just ditch him. And then Jesus, he gets arrested. He's captured. And he endures a sham trial, and now instead of hearing, Hosanna, son of David, Jesus, save us, he hears, crucify him. Just kill him. How did it all go so wrong so fast? Well, hold up just a minute. Look in your Bibles at Mark chapter 14, not quite 15 yet. Mark 14, verse 43. It says this, And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and elders. Do you remember that word, immediately? You remember how it shows up all throughout Mark's gospel? And early on, we're like, okay, we need to underline or circle. Anytime we see that word, you remember how that is the same word way back in chapter 1, verse 3, when Mark quotes the prophet Isaiah and he says, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So, straight. And immediate. Two different words in the English language, but it's the same word in the original language that Mark wrote in. It's a word that shows a purposeful path to the cross. This is the path. This is the way. Now, the last immediate, the last straight, the last word that we're all supposed to underline shows up in chapter 15, verse 1. But it's kind of hidden a little bit. Let me show it to you. Chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation. Skip down a little bit. It says, they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. The last immediate, the last straight is there in the words, 
as soon as. Now, I know it's not the actual word immediate, but in the original language that Mark was writing in, it's the same word. Immediately, straightway, as soon as, and here's what it means. Even Jesus' crucifixion was planned. Not by the Romans, not by the religious elite, but by God himself. If I might borrow the words of Aslan, It means there's a deeper magic from before the dawn of time. And even in Mark's account, even in Mark's gospel, we see some of these plans fulfilled, these ancient prophecies coming true. Look at Mark chapter 14, verses 48 through 50. This is right when Judas, he shows up and he shows the mob, hey guys, this is Jesus, right? He betrays him. Here's how it reads. Jesus said to them, to the mob, have you come out? As against a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Now catch this. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Judas comes up with his posse to take Jesus away. But at this turn in Jesus' life, at this moment in the story, the phrase sets the stage. Jesus goes, all right, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Even these details of Jesus' crucifixion were communicated to us beforehand. Like, it wasn't just planned, it was planned and published. We can go back and read it in the Old Testament. We can even read it within the Gospel of Mark. So, hold up again. Go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The very beginning. And remember, Mark starts his whole Gospel by saying, this is all good news. Mark 1 verse 1 reads like this, the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. From chapter 1 verse 1 all the way through to chapter 16 verse 8, the end, all of it, Mark is working to tell us it's good news. This is all good news. And that includes the crucifixion. Sometimes when the crucifixion is taught, like the word pictures are painted of the gore, um, the violence, the the methods that went along with crucifixion. And that, that can be good and true, and it can really bring out some things we need to see. But actually, in Mark's gospel, that's just not the way he tells the story. Those aren't the details that he highlights. It's not his angle on the story. In Mark chapter 15, as he writes about the crucifixion, Mark is still doing what he started way back in chapter 1, verse 1. He's going, guys, even this part, it's good news. Even, and dare I say, especially in the darkest hour of Jesus' life, in the darkest hour of the history of the world, Mark is still writing his heart out, giving us all that he's got to tell us this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what I want to do with the remaining time today is just highlight three ways that Mark shows us this is good news. Three ways he shows us this is good news. First is this, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, saves through sacrifice. Jesus saves through sacrifice. And in an odd twist of the story, this saving through sacrifice, we see this good news through the mocking cries of people. So look at chapter 15, verses 29 and 30. It says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Catch these next two words. Save yourself. 
and come down from the cross. Their mocking cries for Jesus to save himself, deliver himself, rescue yourself. If he's got the power, as he says, to rebuild the temple, the most ornate, elaborate, complex building in that region at the time, if he can do that, then come on, Jesus, why can't you save yourself? Or so their mocking cries go. That's the common folk as they pass by. The religious leaders jump in in verse 31. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. And of course their claim that he saved others is just a sarcastic jab. And their claim that he cannot save himself is a really deceived boast on their part. What they're doing is they're calling for Jesus to come off that cross and save himself. But by staying on the cross, actually sacrificing himself, that's how Jesus is saving others. It's in his very commitment, his character to obey all that the Father asked him to do and not save himself. That is precisely how Jesus is saving others. They saw the cross and death as weakness, but in it, Jesus is actually displaying his power. They saw the cross and death as loss, but Jesus planned it as the ultimate victory. They wanted a sign that they could see and believe, but Jesus does the opposite. And now all of us, we can see and believe in Jesus even through all their mocking cries. This mocking here that Mark talks about, it's not just like a random historical fact that he's like, oh, I'm going to put that in and make that more interesting. No, he's intentionally bringing that in to highlight, guys, this is good news, the good news of Jesus the Christ who saves through sacrificing himself. And Jesus knew all this was coming. He knew their mocking was coming. Like he and the Father actually planned it before the dawn of time. He said it would happen, and all his enemies were doing exactly what he said. Back in Mark chapter 10, here's what it says. He began to tell them, Jesus was telling his disciples, what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him. And kill him. Jesus knew it. Jesus planned it. He was totally in control. Now here's where I think this hits home for me. I think it's where it hits home for maybe all of us, City Light. No matter how dark the day, no matter how unlucky or unfortunate or defeating a day might seem to you, Jesus is still in control. You know like those days. Those days, you get a diagnosis from the doctor in the morning. Before you can get home and just crumble and cry, you get an email with your kids' latest report cards, and you discover one of them's failing a couple classes. But before you can actually have a conversation with that kid, you got to stop at the grocery store and buy some milk and stuff. But before you leave the grocery store, you get, like, bumped by another car, and while they're calling their insurance company, all the milk goes bad because it's over 90 degrees outside. And you finally get in the car, and you're driving home, and you run over a nail, and you get a flat tire. Those sorts of days, Right? We've all had them. Jesus is still in control. 
Jesus is still on his throne. Jesus still saves through his sacrifice. His sacrifice on the cross, catch this, it saves us from the worst of days, the worst of futures, the worst of eternal, uh, eternal pain. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross saves us from the consequences of our sin forever. So now every other problem that we face, even on those days, can be compared to what we were saved from by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So here's what my wife and I started doing on those days. Um, first, we just pause and we thank God for first world problems. Like this, this past week, um, no lie, uh, our reverse osmosis water filter went out, uh, which means like we didn't have the filtered water and like we had to go get the filter. We had to wait until the next day and we'd have to drive all the way to West Omaha. And you all know the gas prices right now. And at the same time, our dryer went out. And at the same time, our spare dryer, which our sister uses for her garage apartment, it also went out. And we called that guy. He couldn't get there for two days, you know. And in the middle of it, we just said, you know what? Thank you, Jesus. These are first world problems. A spare dryer Reverse osmosis, water filter, Jesus, thank you for your kindness. Thank you that these are first world problems, you know? But actually, we didn't stop there. We took it one step further, and we just started praising Jesus in the middle of it. We said, you know what? Praise you, Jesus, because you got a plan in this. Praise you, Jesus, because you're still in control in this moment. Praise you, Jesus, because you're still faithful and you're on the throne. We just said, you know what? We're going to press into those days in such a way that we still see Jesus is in control. Because in the very mocking of strangers and religious leaders, even then, Jesus was on the throne. Catch this. Even when the throne was a splintered, bloody cross, Jesus stayed on the throne. Jesus saves through sacrifice. Second bit of good news that I think Mark is highlighting here about the crucifixion. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is enthroned by praise. Jesus Christ, when we look at the cross, the crucifixion, we want to see Jesus is enthroned by praise. Let me try to explain this. Look at chapter 15, verses 33 and 34. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and I forgot how Arnie pronounced this. And Nick's not here this morning to tell us the correct way to do it. Eloi, Eloi, Lima Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, those words there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They come from the very first verse of Psalm 22, way back in the Old Testament. But here's the deal. When Jesus quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, he's doing what all the rabbis and the religious teachers of that day always did. He's using the first verse of a psalm to call to mind the actual whole psalm. Jesus is really using like his last breaths, his limited oxygen to tell us that this moment on the cross, hey, it was planned, it was predicted, and it was all published way back in Psalm 22. So let's go back to Psalm 22 and let that shape some of how we see this moment on the cross. For example, Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Mark chapter 15, verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. 
Back to Psalm 22, verse 16. It says, A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Mark 15, verse 24. And they crucified him. They pierced his hands and his feet. Back to Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Mark 15, verse 24 again. They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. I think, surely, we're beginning to see it now. Jesus wasn't only quoting a Bible verse that he learned in Sunday school. Jesus was quoting a Bible verse that he probably learned in ancient Sunday school in the synagogue, but he was quoting it as a way to point to that whole psalm and say, the death on the cross. This death on a cross was predicted and promised back in that psalm. So go read that psalm and let it shape how you see me on the cross. So again, back to Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, verse 2. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And yet, right after that, after the cries of the Christ on the cross, here comes Psalm 22, verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Jesus is saying, my father, why have you forsaken me? My groans go on day and night, but still, God, my God, be praised in this. My father is holy even when he doesn't deliver me. Oh God, my God, who forsakes me now, be praised in this. Be praised through this. Be enthroned on the praises of your people that will forever flow out from this moment, this death, this sacrifice on this cross. One more passage from Psalm 22 that I think shapes our view of the crucifixion. Back in verses 22 and 23, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. So there on the cross, here's what Psalm 22 is telling us. There on the cross, Jesus knew he'd be restored to his brothers. He'd be restored to his spiritual family. He'd be back with the congregation. And Revelation tells us he's not just with the congregation. He's in the middle. He's in the center on the throne in that congregation. And in that moment, all praise, all glory, all honor belongs to God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he saves through sacrifice. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, even on the cross, is enthroned by the praises of his people. Last bit of good news is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is king of the nations. Jesus is the king of the nations. Look at Mark chapter 15, verses 37 through 39. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, imagine with me for a moment, you're a follower of Jesus in the first century, and you're living in Rome during this time, and you've recently given your life to Jesus, and like, you want to follow Jesus with all your heart and in all your life, but the persecution is real. 
You know, like your coworkers started making fun of you once you started following Jesus, and your family has totally distanced from you ever since you started hanging out with those other Jesus followers. And whenever you walk around the city, there's always those soldiers keeping a watchful eye on you, whip in hand, waiting at any moment to strike. Those soldiers are centurions. And now here you are, you're gathered with the church, probably in a house, hoping that nobody else knows you're in that house. And as Christians, you're listening to the gospel of Mark. It's being read out loud to you, and you come to this part. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. A centurion? Surely not. A centurion? That is truly shocking. A centurion, how is that even possible? Well, it might be surprising, but what this centurion saw in Mark chapter 15 actually fit his worldview. You see, the way that the Romans mockingly crucified Jesus flowed right along the same pattern and process of how the Romans would install or coronate a new Caesar. When the Romans installed a new Caesar, there were usually nine steps. A group held him as Lord and God. They would put royal robes on him, give him a wreath and a scepter. They would lead the new Caesar on a procession, and then they would prepare a sacrifice. And then they'd arrive at Capitoline Hill where they'd offer him wine mixed with myrrh, but it was his job to always deny it. Then Caesar would ascend the steps of the temple, and he always had a leader on his left and a leader on his right, and then the sacrifice would be made. And then they'd again proclaim on its Lord and God, and then they'd wait for a sign from the heavens. Would there be a sign from the heavens? Now, we don't have time to go into all the details and like do the comparisons, but Mark chapter 15 follows that same pattern and process as it describes the crucifixion of Jesus. And so the Roman centurion, who surely had witnessed the coronation of a Roman Caesar and had surely in his history read countless other coronations and he knew how they went. Now he's watching this all happen to Jesus and Jesus is going through the same process. But Jesus goes through it as a suffering savior, not a pompous ruler. Jesus goes through it as a substitute sacrifice, not a killing machine. Jesus goes through it as a loving leader, not a ruthless dictator. It's the same pattern, the same process, but a different king. And the centurion's response, when he saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. And that takes us back to Psalm chapter 22. That says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Even the centurions in Rome, all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. City Light, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it's for everybody. It's for everyone. Please don't make the mistake that Jesus, and think that Jesus is just for religious people. No, that's not the case. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is just for good people. Don't buy the lie that Jesus is just for your grandma or just to keep the crowds in line. No, Jesus is for everybody. From Council Bluffs to Rwanda. 
from southwest Iowa to the Middle East, from Kansas City to Paraguay, and that includes you. Like, you, you. You might feel like a centurion, a bit skeptical of this whole Jesus thing. Maybe an awkward relationship with Jesus' people, his church. If you feel like a centurion, then let me encourage you to do what this centurion did. Look at Christ on the cross. Like, literally, like give him a fair shake. Go read Mark 14, 15, 16. Just read it. Watch him die. Watch him rise. Go look at Christ on the cross. And after you do that, then make your call. Make your decision. Is he the son of God? Is he the Lord of all? I think you might find, like I found myself, that Jesus is the savior of all who would call on him. Let's pray, City Light. Jesus, we praise you. We praise you as we behold you, even on the cross, in your darkest hour, even in your pain, as you make the sacrifice, we praise you. You are enthroned on the praises of your people. City Light, can I just encourage you, whether you're in this room or you're tuning in online, would you just begin to praise Jesus in your heart? Just speak to him how he's good, how he's faithful, how he loves, how he's all-knowing, how he's in total control. Would you just praise him with your own words in your own heart? Jesus, we praise you, we exalt you. You are the king of the nations. You have saved so many of us here gathered, and yet there's so many more that you're pursuing, and you want to save them through sacrifice as well. You love for your name to be known among the nations, and by nations, that includes people of Council Bluffs. That includes the people all throughout southwest Iowa. That includes people to the ends of the earth. And so, Jesus, right now, this morning, in our hearts, we just praise you. We exalt you, and we ask that you would use us to take your name to the nations, to reach the centurions in our lives, love them in the name of Jesus, speak to them the name of Jesus, and help them behold you. And then maybe shifting gears a little bit, City Light, I just want to encourage you to see, to trust. Say, Jesus, would you show me that you're still good and you're in control even on the dark days? Even on those days, the hard days, would you say, Jesus, show it to me. Help me see you in those days. Arrest my attention. Grab a hold of my affections on those days. Open my, the eyes of my heart to see you on those days. Jesus, thank you that you are completely sovereign. You're totally in control. Even in this, the worst day. And thank you that you proved it to us all through that day, fulfilling scriptures and prophecies, ancient predictions, and thank you that you proved it to us in your resurrection. What looked like utter defeat was absolute victory. How good you are, Jesus. We love you. We praise you. Make it real in our hearts. Make it real in our schedules, our conversations, our work this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.